The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How's everybody doing? Grab your Bibles if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 19 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up, wave it around nice and high. We will make sure you have one that you can track along with us. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift. A um, couple of announcements. Um, Pastor's Coffee is happening today right after service. If you are new or new-ish to Heritage, we'd love a chance to meet you, be able to introduce ourselves, the staff and the pastors here. Um, it'll be in the coffee shop right after service. Just take up a few minutes of your time and would love to be able to get to know you. Um, also, right after that, over at the Hub, which is our office right across the parking lot here, um, we are going to have our meeting today for those who are interested in going with me in September to do the Apostle Paul trip. So um, we'll be going to Turkey, Greece, Rome, islands in between, and, and really just studying um, the, the New Testament epistles in location, including the Book of Revelation. We'll be going to Patmos, where the Book of Revelation was given. Um, it's going to be an incredible, incredible trip. So we have an organizational meeting just to kind of talk about that. That'll be um, after service um, right over at the Hub and pizza is provided. So if you're interested, pop in over there and we'll have more information for you there. Um, also, uh, I forgot this one this morning. Flipside of 50 group, you're having a Dutch lunch today at 1230 at the original Roadhouse Grill. So that's not the Texas Roadhouse, right? It's the original roadhouse over on the other side, okay? Like Bymart over there. Um, also, Easter service. This week, a um, couple of service time changes. We, we still have Wednesday night service this week. So we will be having our midweek Bible study this week. I'll be teaching. I don't even remember the book we're covering right off the top of my head, actually. But we'll be doing, we'll, we'll teach something. That'll be Wednesday night. Um, Friday night, we have the Good Friday service, which is at 6.30. If you've never attended a Good Friday service here at Heritage, I cannot recommend it enough. That's my favorite service of the entire year, honestly. They're, they're, they're just really powerful, somber, even emotional times of just considering um, what Christ did for us. And so that'll be this Friday at 6.30. Um, we have a sunrise service in the hub next door at Sunday at 6.30 a.m., um, which is all a really good option for those of you that are maybe volunteering in different areas on Sunday morning to be able to come in and spend some time in worship before service. And then on Sunday, we're only doing one service next week. It's at 10 a.m. Just one big service with a barbecue, baptisms, the whole deal. So that'll be next Sunday at 10 a.m. And then finally, there's a women's Bible study anchored in the word. Titus starts April 18th through May 9th on Tuesday mornings. Um, so you can stop by the information center on your way back, the Connect Center, and get more information on that. Um, my apologies in advance. Um, I am going to cough and hack and wheeze and snort my way through this entire sermon. I, I've got that cough that's been going around and I cannot shed it to save my life. And I, I don't know how I'm not dehydrated with the just sheer volume of fluids that have come out of my nasal cavity this week. It's stunning. It's stunning. It's, it's like in the Bible, the oil thing that never ran dry, just kept pouring out. That's my nose right now. So I apologize in advance. I got my tissues and I got my cough drops. My wife just gave me an essentials oil cough drop. So my superpowers should cook in any minute. Um, and I think if I have cancer, I'll be healed of that too, apparently with essential oils, right girls? Um, so anyway, um, I apologize in advance for that. Um, I normally 
Normally, I would apologize for missing a weekend like last weekend, normally. Um, so you guys know, I was gone for, for two Sundays because we went to England, and then I came back. I was only here for one week, and normally I would never try to miss another week like that close to having been gone for a while, but these were not normal circumstances. Um, and so I, I do not apologize um, uh, I actually got the opportunity just out of the blue. A buddy of mine here in town who is actually a Tar Heel fan, he's an elder at Rogue Valley Fellowship. Um, we got to talking and he was like, we should just go to the final four. And I was like, man, I already looked. Flights are super expensive. They won't let you use miles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, well, I got a company car, so you won't have to pay for gas. My aunt and uncle live in Phoenix. We can stay with them for free. All we need is food and nosebleed seats are shockingly cheap for such a thing. And we got to talking about it. Next thing I know, I was at the final four realizing a, um, uh, like, I, I kn- I'm sorry, Duck fans. I know you lost. I'm sorry. But, um, but I, th- like, as an eight-year-old boy, I watched Michael Jordan in North Carolina in 1982 win the national championship. And it has been a lifelong dream of mine ever since to be able to go to that, much less see North Carolina win. So I went to a different kind of church service and I wept tears and it was, um, it was the coolest experience of my life. Not count, don't, don't, <gasps> family birth. He said it was, that's not what I mean, but it was, it was amazing. So I appreciate Jeremy and the staff covering for me so that I could go play for a weekend. That was amazing. Um, but now I'm back. So what we're going to be doing today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, because today is a uh, somewhat um, religious day, we might say. But I wonder if we know what it means. So like, when I was at the game, I met a guy there. It was, we drove 2,200 miles round trip to go do this. Like it was a big, big thing to go do this. And I'm there and we're thinking about how far we drove and all that and ends up sitting right in front of me. And when you buy tickets to the final four, you have seats for both games on Saturday and the Monday night game. So you're sitting with the same people. Um, so you get to know them and it was a great experience. Um, everybody was just awesome. We had a blast. But there was this one guy, Carolina fan, drove from Roseburg. So I'm like, man, you got an extra hour and a half on us. And, and I'm getting to know him. And he's telling me how he's been a Tar Heel fan his whole life, just for whatever reason. He's not from North Carolina. He just happened to end up pulling for this team. And as we were talking about it, it occurred to me, he had no idea what the phrase, like the name Tar Heel meant. And this is a lifelong fan who has spent, I don't know how much money he, it cost him to do all the stuff, but all this to, to come all the way down here to go to this event, and he had no idea what the actual name Tar Heel meant. And I'm thinking, that's just weird. Like, you're following them your whole life, and you don't even know. And so I'm talking with him about it, and he was like, yeah, I was kind of always afraid to ask, because I figured it was like some old South racial thing, like Tar Baby or something like that, and I just figured I'd rather not know. And I'm like, that's even worse, man. Like, you would follow that team that's named after this blatantly racist thing, and you're just like, well, I'll just, I'll just, ignorance is bliss, I'll pretend. And so as I got to talk to him, and just for the record, it's not racial. Um, it actually stands for stubborn. That's why the logo or the mascot is a ram. Um, in the Revolutionary War, the North Carolina soldiers, like the volunteer army, which are just farmers and stuff then, um, they were being invaded by the British in this one area, and they just would not back off their land. They just kept fighting even when things were looking bad. Ended up turning the tide, pushing them out, and a letter to somebody from somebody got written. And, and in the letter, they said, those North Carolina boys stood there and fought like they had tar stuck to their heels. And that's where the name Tar Heel kind of came from. It means we're stubborn, which is awesome. And uh, that's why we didn't lose, ducks. Anyway... 
um, um, <laughs> um, anyway, I found it really interesting that here's this guy that's like, he's, he's spending money on, he's buying shirts that say Tar Heel all over the stuff, has no idea the significance of it, has no idea what it even means, even thinks it might mean something bad and still wearing it, having no clue what he's actually talking about. And I thought about that and I wonder how many of us that's the case here today. How many of you have grown up going to Palm Sunday services? Raise your hand. Like for your life. If I was to ask you, what's so significant about the Palm Sunday service? What's so significant about Palm Sunday? Like what does it really mean to us? What can we take from this? What would you say? I, I think most of you would probably be able to point to the event, I hope. You'd say, oh, triumphant entry. It's when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the week that, of the crucifixion. And that's great. But like, what does that mean? Like, what, what do we pull from that? And, and for how long have we set aside? And it's really kind of unique even to our culture. Because if you go do a study on church history, you're going to be hard pressed to find anything about Palm Sunday. This is something that we do now. And so, so here's this thing. We decorate for it. We've got people putting stuff all over Twitter and social media about Palm Sunday. It's a trending hashtag right now as we speak. But do we really understand the significance of what really went down in that moment and why it was such a big deal? And, and if we do, like, what does that mean to us today? Because if we're going to honor this and celebrate this and study this, then surely there's some sort of application. It's got to matter. Otherwise, this is the epitome of religion, right? We're just doing something for the sake of doing something because it's churchy. And that's not what we want at all. So what we're going to do today is step out of our normal study through Colossians and we're working our way through our towards Easter this week. And I want to spend some time talking about this event um, that's known as Palm Sunday. But to be able to do this, we have to have the backstory. Now, I, I know you guys know this about me. Like, I love backstory. I love big pictures. So I get excited about this. Maybe for some of you, it's a little tedious. You're going to have to track with me. And I'm going to warn you in advance, we're not going to get to the actual Palm Sunday part till about halfway through the sermon. I'm just warning you right now. But you can't divorce the backstory and some of the events that are actually tied to it in Scripture and just jump to verse 28. Because look at it. In chapter 19, verse 28, what does it say? And when he had said these things... So if you read this, what do you do? You should ask, well, uh, what things? What did he say? Well, there's a whole section right before that, this whole parable about a parable that we're going to look at about the 10 minas. But even in that, it starts out, and how does it start? And as they heard these things, what things? We're jumping in halfway through a story. So we have to back up even farther than that. And what I'm going to do is actually take a running start actually from Luke chapter 18, because I want you to look at verse 31 of Luke chapter 18, because the disciples don't get it either. They don't fully understand the significance of what is about to happen, though Jesus is telling them over and over and over three times already in the book of Luke, Jesus tells them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem He's been headed towards Jerusalem since Luke chapter 9. It says in Luke chapter 9 that he set his face toward Jerusalem. And from that moment on, everything he's doing in this, these narratives that you see is his goal, his end point. The thing he's looking towards is going to Jerusalem. And he's telling these guys along the way, it's not going to go real well. It's going to be a challenge. And so he says in verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. So he's been telling them over and over, we're going to Jerusalem. You you might say Palm Sunday's coming and here's what it's all about. And he's telling them over and over and over, but it's fallen on deaf ears. They don't understand what's going on. It's been hidden from them. Why? Because they don't understand a king that dies. It doesn't make sense to them. They're all about power and position and authority. They're obsessed with it. You've seen the stories. As you go through the narratives, how many times do we see the apostles going, um, who's the greatest? And I want to be the greatest. They're arguing amongst themselves about the greatest. They got mom involved, for goodness sakes. One of them, the fights have been going so much, they brought their mom in and she says to Jesus, Lord, will you grant this one request that my two sons will be seated, one at your left and one at your right hand in the kingdom? Now, they're not thinking heaven. They're talking about the kingdom. They're thinking it's coming like this week. We're going to Jerusalem. That's where the kingdom is going to come. They're getting excited about it, as you're going to see in just a minute. And they are completely and totally focused on power and position and authority. We're going to kick Rome out. We're going to prove all these religious leaders wrong. All these people that have been rejecting us and mocking us and pushing us aside and plotting against us, they're all going to get put in their place and we are going to be in control. That's what they're all about. And so Jesus comes in talking about the fact that he's going to die. And that doesn't make any sense. How do you have a dying king? How do you start with a dying king? It's just a paradigm that they don't get. And so they're not tracking with any of these different things. It must have been so frustrating for the apostles. We read the stories and we see at times Jesus got frustrated with them, right? Guys, let me tell you again. Okay, here's what's going to happen. And he he goes through. So we can see he would get frustrated with them. You slow of thinking, things like that. But how frustrating it must have been for the apostles because they're thinking they have hitched their wagon to the king. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus, the king, God himself. This is, we're, we're finally, we are, attacked. and remember, these are guys that had been, just by the fact that they were fishermen and businessmen and things like that, they had been rejected by other rabbis. If you were a Jewish kid at that day, if you were like legit, smart, talented, gifted, you would have been picked up by another rabbi somewhere along the way and trained to become a rabbi. The people who went and did the family job were the ones that just couldn't cut it. So these guys have been rejected by everybody and now they've hitched their wagon to the king and they're excited. And yet every time an opportunity comes for Jesus's popularity to grow, Every time a miracle would happen that proves he is who he is, he would do things like go, hey, uh, don't tell anybody how I healed you. What? We need that on Twitter, man. What are you talking about? We need to tell everybody about that. This is, if they see these things, they'll know. No, 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 not now. Don't tell anybody. It's not my time yet. Don't tell anybody. Don't say anything. He does it over and over. And then instead of like cozying up to people that could sort of grease the wheels of success for him, the power players in that day, like the Pharisees and scribes who were the people in charge, when they would come around to talk with him, instead of maybe cozying up to him or even trying to help them understand who he is, he starts talking in parables in ways that they don't even understand. It's like it's on purpose. He's making sure that they don't get it. And then the people he hangs out with, 
Well, look at Luke chapter 19. It says that as they're on their way there, he's doing these miracles. He comes off of, of healing a blind beggar and then he comes into Jericho and all these people are there to see him. And who's the one guy he picks that he's gonna hang out with? Zacchaeus, the wee little man. And it's not just that he's wee little man. We remember that from the song, but he's the most hated wee little man in all of the land, poet. That's the truth. He's hated. They can't stand him. They despise him. And the reason is, as a tax collector, you work for Rome. Rome's the, the army that's in charge, the nation that's oppressing Israel. And they're kind of the, the domineering force. And so Israel's not even its own land right now because of Rome. And so the tax collector would be told, hey, you collect this amount of money. Here's your quota. Anything you get over and above that is all yours. And so these guys were professional crooks. They would charge exorbitant rates. They're raising taxes for no reason other than they wanted to put that money in their pocket. And so for the rest of the Jews, not only are you raising money for the army that is keeping you at bay, but you're cheating your fellow Jewish people to line your own pockets in the process. They were the scum of the earth. And these are the people Jesus is hanging out with, like the worst of the worst. And it had to be frustrating for them. Like, Jesus, oh man, do we have... There's so many other places we could go that would benefit you. And you're going to tie yourself to this guy now? This is going to, man, we're going to need to do some PR work to clean this one up tomorrow. Because when word gets out he was hanging out with a tax collector, that is not going to help this ascension to kingship. His popularity figures are going to dip. I mean, it had to be so frustrating. And I think Jesus probably loved it. But here we see him with the Pharisee, or with this, this man, this tax collector, Zacchaeus. And Jesus gives them his mission statement, which they still miss. But he says to him in verse nine, Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Speaking of Zacchaeus, this hated man is now part of the family is what he says. In verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission statement. He's not coming for a power and authority position right now. He's not coming to rule and reign. He's coming to suffer and serve. And they just don't grasp it. Now here's what's gonna happen. Jesus knows this. He's fully aware of this issue that they're struggling with. These guys are so obsessed with position and power and authority and being in control. And they're headed to Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday's about to happen. And Jesus knows the declaration he's about to make. He knows the reception that he's gonna get. He knows all the things that are gonna happen and he's worried about his boys because he's thinking, with this power obsession they have, if I don't spend some more time trying to really hammer this home to them, they're gonna get caught up in all this stuff that goes on. They're gonna think once again, we've come to take control, we've come to ascend. You'll see it in the text. He says this, that this is what he's worried is going to happen. And so he calls these guys together. guys. The son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. They hear that. Verse 11, and as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he tells them this story. He wants them to illustrate, or he wants to illustrate to them what's about to happen. And he said, therefore, a nobleman or a king went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. A mina is about 100 days average wages. So 10 minas is a lot of money. A, this is a significant investment. He gives to the servants 10 minas and he said to them, 
engage in business, or literally make profit until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So, so far in the story, we have this king and he's got this kingdom of people and he pulls some servants, says, invest this, do this with this. But there's people that are citizens of the kingdom that are saying to him, we will not let this man reign over us. Now, the Jews at that time had a really good historical context to understand this because they had just done it. Previously, before Herod was actually installed as king, he had killed, according to historians, some 3,000 Jewish people on a Sabbath of all days. And then when word got out that Caesar was going to take Herod and establish him as king over the areas, the Jewish leaders sent a delegate to Rome to meet with Caesar to stand before him. And their message was, we will not have this man reign over us. So they are fully familiar what this is saying. This is a delegation being sent to say, this is not our king. And he's equating their dislike of him to the Jewish dislike of Herod who had just killed his, their people. And so there's this story. He gives this investment to these guys and he goes away. Well, verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now, before we go forward, I want you to notice something. This authority, this rule that these apostles want, it's right here, isn't it? He doesn't tell them it doesn't exist. He actually tells them a story that he's saying, the authority and the influence and the rule that you want, here's how you get it, guys. But it's through faithfulness, not power. It's through faithfulness over things that seem small. This is the way to rule. This is the way to authority. This is the path to power. Hang on to that, okay? So there's these guys and they've invested well and he's rewarding them. You did great. He, you're going to rule five cities. You're going to rule 10 cities. And he's giving this authority and this rule and power. And then this one guy comes up just, so you know, in the Bible, if there's a story and it then says, and there was another guy, you pretty much never want to be the other guy. Just so you know, that's usually a bad thing if you're the other guy. So that's what's going on here. It says, this other guy came, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, there's something inherent in the heart of this guy that's specifically different than the other guys. The other guys understand that what they had, that money that had been given them to invest, was not theirs. It had been given to them on loan, if you will. They were servants, not rulers. And their job was to invest what had been given on behalf of the king, knowing that they will stand before that king one day and give account for what had been done. They knew it wasn't theirs. But the heart of this guy is the exact opposite. He's, he's thinking as if this is my stuff. That's why he says to him, you just take what's not yours and you reap stuff you didn't do. Any benefit I would have made, that would have been my labor, not yours. And you're going to take it away. You're a hard man. You're a severe man. There's an inherent selfishness 
and a self-rule that says it's about me, it's not about you. And he thinks this is all about him already. Well, he kind of gets called out on the folly of this thinking though. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now, he's not agreeing with him and saying, yes, I'm a severe hard man. What he's saying is, okay, if, you, if that's what you think, then why didn't that thought actually drive you to do something? If you think I'm a severe man and that was your actual issue, then you would have at least done something because a severe man's gonna come and ask you about it. It's like those who would say, you know what, if, if God is really gonna judge people, then I don't want anything to do with him. Well, there's an inherent, and I mean this respectfully, foolishness in that argument because somehow you think that by saying I don't want anything to do with the judge means you're gonna somehow be excluded from the judgment. And if you know that he's going to come and judge, that should actually motivate you even more to do something because you know you're gonna give account. So this man, it's just about him. It's not even really about the king. And he's just making up excuses, frankly, of why, why this guy is not worthy of being bowed before. And so the king's calling him on it. If that's your argument, let's use your own words. Let's use your own logic. If you really thought I was a harsh man, if that's the issue, that it's about me, you would have at least put it in the bank. But you didn't do anything. You just sat on it. In verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Not gonna put that on a lot of bumper stickers most likely, right? To those that only wanna talk about the soft, caring friendship Jesus, these are hard verses to deal with. This is an important story. This is something Jesus is trying to get across to his men before they start storming off into Jerusalem thinking that this rule and reign is coming. He's teaching them something really significant about what's going to happen. And it's gonna be this. Number one, he's going to be rejected as king. He's driving that home again. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be rejected. You wanna come stand by the king? Your king is going to be killed and rejected. You need to understand that. Rejection's part of the deal. Remember that. Number two, I've left you with great treasures. I've invested in you. I've given to you of myself. I've given things of myself to you. I've invested in you as servants that you might be stewards of what I've given you. <coughs> Number three, he's showing them that the rule and authority that they want, it's there, but it's deferred. And it's to be invested and gained that there's a certain way to achieve the kind of power and authority and position they want and it looks different than what they're used to and he wants them to stop and think about it and understand and not get caught up in all these world's ways that are going on where kings are just lifted up and ascended by power that, that thrones are taken. He's like, that's not what's going to happen here. The, the power and influence is there, but it looks different. Number four, when I return, you'll give account. You know that church? When he returns, we'll give account. He's stating that really clearly. All servants give account, the good ones and the bad. And then finally, the wicked will be judged. 
The wicked will be judged. We do not do unbelievers favors when we pretend that there is no hell. So this is what Jesus is driving home to these guys. And so he gives this message to him. He gives them this story. Verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? (laughs) Excuse me. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, um, the book of Luke is written for a very specific purpose. Um, The author of Luke is a very intentional and detail-oriented writer. It's probably one of the reasons um, in terms of the writing that I'm drawn to it most. I, I really love the way the accounts in this book are portrayed. I realized as I was preparing for this that for Palm Sunday now, three years in a row, I've used Luke 19 instead of any of the other gospel accounts. And I'm just like, oh, well, I get to preach, so I'll choose. But um, that's where we've been. And the author of Luke, (coughs) uh, the author of the gospel of Luke, which is also Acts, it's all together. um, He says this at the very beginning. He tells why he wrote it. And he says, inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that's delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke writes this stuff for this guy, Theophilus. He's someone, he's saying, okay, a lot of people have been writing about this, a lot of of ink has been spilt telling the stories that I'm going to talk about here. Um, But you know what? I've followed these things really closely for a long time. And I've spent time with and interviewed those who have followed these things and those who are even eyewitnesses to much of it. And so what I wanted to do for you is write a really specific, detailed account of these things that went down so that you, Theophilus, can be absolutely certain about these events that you've been told about. So in the book of Luke, the things that he writes about are very intentional. He's not haphazard with his pen. What he's doing is very intentional. And so you see some of that in here. It's kind of funny. Jesus tells him, hey, when you go there, if the guy says, what are you doing with my colt? Just say, the Lord has need of it. And then the account goes on and they went in there and the guy said, what are you doing with my colt? The Lord has need of it. And it went. So you see like there's this detail that goes in that's almost trivial at times, but the writer is being really specific. Why? Because this event's important. And because this event really happened, and because this event, there's a purpose in it being recorded more than just documenting history. He's talking even about these are the things that you have been taught, the things that you believe, that you might have certainty in these things, I'm writing them. And so here's where we come to, halfway through, the Palm Sunday account. It's Passover. Jerusalem is a buzz. It is full of people because this is one of the feasts that the Jewish men would all make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for. And so they would all come in. The population just explodes in the city at that time. It would all culminate at the temple for the temple sacrifices, remembering what happened in the book of Exodus, how God had saved them when they were enslaved to Egypt. It's the purpose of Passover. And so 
All these people are coming in. Now, the city in this particular week was especially a buzz. We know this from John's gospel because John tells us that the Pharisees and religious leaders had already put word out among the people saying, hey, if you know where Jesus is or if you see him, let us know so that they could arrest him. And so there's a lot of buzz going around. People are like, is he going to show up? Is he going to come? Is he going to sneak in? Will he come in at night maybe so he's not noticed or any of those things? Well, Jesus blows all of those theories out of the water. And he doesn't come sneaking in or just even come walking in. He comes in with full regalia, um, but he's doing so in a way that sends a major significant message. Read on in the account. It says, And they brought it to Jesus, the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Excuse me. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, a couple things to note. What's being done is really significant. It's not normal. Um, And one of the ways that we see this, for example, is when anyone makes their pilgrimage into Jerusalem, they do it a very specific way. As you're coming up the mountain, up the hill into Jerusalem, they would be singing songs or or psalms of ascent. There are certain psalms that were used as you made your way into Jerusalem, singing about Jerusalem, about God, worship music. Um, If you get to come with us to Israel on one of our trips, you'll see we do that. As we're in the bus driving up into Jerusalem, we're singing these hymns of ascent. Um, It's a little different because our first view of Israel comes as we come out, or of Jerusalem, excuse me, um, comes from a bus as you're coming out of a tunnel on the highway. A little different than what they had back then, but still the experience becomes a really powerful, it's a, it's a really significant moment when you first see the city of Jerusalem. How much more so for these guys? And so when anyone was coming and traveling, even if you were wealthy enough to have donkeys or oxen or uh, whatever you could ride to come, um, when you got to that area, everyone walked into Jerusalem. Uh, It was a way of honoring and commemorating, especially for Passover, the Jewish people of the past who had wandered through the desert. And it was also this idea of just soaking in and treasuring that moment. You didn't come in high and mighty on a horse. When you were coming in for the festival, you would walk. But Jesus gets put on a donkey. That's on purpose, and it's a little different. And the reason this was done is because he's making a specific claim that he is king. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus knows in doing this, in riding the donkey in, He's making an intentional declaration that every Pharisee and every good Jew would absolutely recognize because they're expecting, they've been waiting for Messiah forever. These are the prophecies about the Messiah, the King that's gonna come and set everything right. And so if Jesus comes in, not only not walking, but on a donkey, this is a nationalistic claim to be King in their mind. So there's no sneak in this one past them. That's why the Pharisees are saying, rebuke your disciples, They're calling you king. You are not king. Tell them to shut 
up. And he responds with that great line, um, if, if, you, if you got them to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Worse, Jesus will be worshiped. Amen? He will. Um, if you get to come on that trip, I highly recommend taking a rock from that hill and bringing it home with you. I don't know if that's legal or not, but we all do it. Um, we all, we, we're like, this is one of the rocks that would have sang. It's kind of cool. But anyway, Jesus is coming in. This procession goes on. There's palm branches. Other accounts tell us about the palm branches that are being waved, which is an Israeli national symbol. Um, the robes are being put on the ground to honor the king that's coming in. This is a big, massive procession that's coming. You remember Aladdin? They made the big procession to bring Prince Ali into the kingdom. This is what they're doing. And he's claiming to be king. It's intentional. It's not accidental. It's on purpose. And the reactions that you see out of the people, you see the same three reactions that you see actually from the previous account. You see the good servants. Those are the disciples that are with them and they're worshiping. You see the wicked servants. Those are the people that are worshiping and they're singing, yay, the king's here. But in three days, they're not going to be singing so much. Instead of, yay, the king's here, they're going to be saying, this man will not rule over us. And they'll say, crucify him. Because they're after, they're just looking out for themselves. They're not actually about Jesus. And then there's the citizen or the wicked servants that's there, the Pharisees themselves who are adamantly opposed to Christ. And even as he's coming in with that declaration, they're saying, we will not have this man rule over us. A very, it's a quote that they'll actually say in Jesus's even in his trial. So this whole thing is going on. This is the triumphant entry that's going on. Now, here's what I want you to stop and think about for just a minute. And then I'm going to make two points and we'll be done. Think about who's riding this donkey. Like really, separate it from the Sunday school lesson and the coloring sheet that you got. And, and think for a minute about who's really on this donkey. Like we've been studying this in Colossians, right? What have we learned about him? He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a power, strength, and authority that they can't possibly understand. He is God. If he wanted to, knowing what lies ahead, knowing the hypocrisy in the hearts of the people that are there, knowing the judgment from the Pharisees that are pointing their finger, at the snap of a finger, they wouldn't even exist anymore if he wanted them to. He has more power and more authority than the disciples could ever possibly comprehend. Nothing has to happen that he doesn't want to happen. Nothing. And yet knowing what's going to happen, he chooses to go. And he chooses to be quiet. He chooses to be humble. And he goes in knowing that a week later, even people that are waving palm branches today are going to be spitting on him and shouting crucify him and killing him in a week. And he just does it. That's unbelievable. 
Why is this story so significant? I'll tell you something. The king is sovereign. He's not just Jesus the rabbi. Even in the parable he told about the minus, he said there was a king who went to receive his kingdom. He didn't say there was a guy that hoped to be king. He said he was king. So even as Jesus comes in, he is the king. And he is willingly swallowing it all. Not ascending to that power. He could have marched right in, went straight to the temple mount, said, bring me a throne, and said, we're going to change some things right now. And would have been justified in doing all of it. And instead, he chooses humility as he goes in. Let me tell you something. There's an unfortunate byproduct that can occur in emphasizing and teaching about the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Which we teach Jesus is sovereign. But there can be almost an arrogance or an overinflation of fatuation with power that can come from it. And in this particular story, I see two things that I think are really applicable and really good for us to understand as a church. And the first one is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a, the good servant, you must be humble. Not you should be humble. Not maybe one day we'll be humble. Not it's good for us at times to be humble. But if we're going to follow Jesus... We must be humble. There was a phrase back in the day, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, you would follow that rabbi so closely. You would go everywhere he goes. You would never want that guy to be out of your sight. You're learning to do what he does. You're learning to teach what he teaches. You're learning to talk like him, walk like him, act like him. And there was a phrase even that would be said in that day. They said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea is you're following so closely behind him that his dust as he takes steps is getting on you. That's how tightly you are following your rabbi. And so if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have got to understand he's humble. He's meek. He's king. But he said, you know, the the only self-descriptive words we have of Jesus in the Bible, the only thing that we have record of in the Bible where Jesus is telling us what he's like. It's his own autobiographical words. He says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Fighting for power is exhausting and it's never done. And Jesus is saying, learn from me. I'm meek. These disciples are so obsessed with power. And you know what? We we read these gospel accounts and we have this way of divorcing ourselves from the story and going, oh, those knuckleheads, they just don't get it. We are exactly like them. Have you ever noticed how we as Christians, we go nuts when some celebrity comes out that they're a Christian. Have you noticed that? Doesn't matter how terrible of an actor they are, Kirk Cameron, doesn't matter any of those things. You could be the worst quarterback in football, Tim Tebow, but we will all become Bronco fans just because of you. Why is that? Why do we go crazy for that one guy that we can point to? You know why? Because we want someone with power, position, and authority to validate who we are. We want to be esteemed. We don't want to be disrespected. We don't want to be laughed at. And we want to be right. 
And so if someone with power is in a position that we can point to, like, see? And so we do it, and then we, we jump on people, and we have issues like the whole Mel Gibson fiasco that came down, and we get left looking like fools because we're trying to follow celebrities instead of following Jesus. And it happens all the time. And if that's not what we're doing, then we'll use politics. And we'll put all our emphasis in that. And so we had the religious right. Did the religious right movement over the last however many decades, did that make America a more Christian nation? No. We are power starved. I have a quote from you for a famous theologian. He said this. I lost my quote. Ah, there it is. Christians never seem to reevaluate power in light of the cross. They just want their turn at it. Think about that. Christians never seem to reevaluate power in the light of the cross. They just want their turn at it. And here's these disciples, and they're, they're probably thinking good. If we had power and authority and control, look what we could do. We would get the oppressive army out. We would be free. We could do what we're supposed to do. Worship would be unhindered. We wouldn't be tithing with coins of Caesar. We would, it would be right. But it's not the way Jesus chose. He could have come in there right then and done all of that in that moment. But he was on a different mission. And the gospel shows us Man, if you want to influence people around you, Jesus came to change the world and he did it through humility and self-sacrifice and love for those who hated him. And that's what we have to be like, church. We need to get this idea that the right leader or the right famous person or the right Christian movie or the right Christian music or these things are going to validate us in some way and going to affect the culture and it's all going to turn. The Bible actually paints a pretty decent picture that says it's probably just going to keep getting worse for us in a lot of ways. But what the Bible does teach us is if you want power, if you want authority, if you want influence, the way to do that is through faithfulness in the small things and specifically through humbling yourself and being covered in the dust of our rabbi Jesus, taking his yoke on us and saying, okay, I'll be lowly of heart. But man, we hate to lose, don't we? We hate to lose, and it feels like losing sometimes. It felt like it to them. They're going to scatter, right? What do you do with a dead king? I'll be honest with you guys. The final four last week, the whole Oregon-North Carolina game, 40% of me wanted Carolina to win because I'm a Carolina fan. 60% of me wanted Carolina to win because I didn't want to have to hear from you guys for the next however long. We hate to lose, We want to win, we want to be right, and we want to prove other people wrong, and that will validate us, and we will be in a position of power and authority. That's not like our Savior. And we need to to throw this idea of power and authority away, or at least we need to reevaluate what power really is in light of the gospel. Power, influence, change through the gospel comes through humility. And number two is this. By the way, especially for people who hate us. Look at the next one. Here's the second one. The first one, followers of Christ must be humble. The second one is this that I see in this story. Christians should cry. 
Christians should cry. Let me show you what I mean. The story goes on. Verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Think about this. There is great confidence in the sovereign reign of God, correct? But it doesn't mean we can't cry. Oh, that we would shed tears for those who oppose us. It's not usually what we do. Those who oppose us, we wanna squash. We wanna win the debates. We want to power people down. We want to silence critics. Like our reaction when we face opposition and hate is we want to deal with that. But think about this. Jesus knows these people are going to kill him in seven days. Less than that. He knows this week he's going to be killed by the same people that are cheering his name in that moment. And he has all power and all authority. He could do anything he wants. And he sits there and he looks over that city and he sees all those people and all the hubbub and the commotion of Passover and everything. And he's weeping for them. Going, they don't get it. They missed it. They don't realize their savior. They want a king to set things right and make life easy. I came to set them free and bless them forever and they missed it. And he's weeping for them. I don't know that we have that same heart for the lost, not to that degree. When's the last time any of us shed a tear over an unbeliever like that? Man, oh, that God would give us that heart. When we see people who are maybe atheists on YouTube or things like that, speaking out all manner of vile things about our faith and even about our Savior, oh, that God would cause our reaction not to start boiling up with anger and pride, like, we need to prove them wrong, that guy's a moron, but instead that our reaction would be like Jesus that goes, he's lost, he doesn't get it, and he's in trouble, and judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And if we really understood the reality of that life apart from Christ, would we look different at those who may face condemnation? There, there was a um, Gospel Coalition gathering we were at one time, and James McDonald and Alistair Begg were up on the stage together, and James McDonald was talking about hell. It was when Rob Bell's book had come out, so there was a lot of argument about whether hell is real or not and all these kind of things. And James McDonald, as he does, he's doing this big, fiery, thunderous, bold, absolutely, and he does this whole thing. There is absolutely hell. It is inarguable. And Alistair Begg, in that soft Scottish voice of him, he interrupted and he goes, aye, but can you say that without a tear in your eye? Like, it's not about being right. And it's not about being validated. And it's not about being in power. The only reason our king has not come and set up his throne and his kingdom yet is because he's still shedding tears over the lost. 
and he's called us to be the vessel by which they enter the kingdom of God. It's on us. And think about this. He gave us the gospel. And he gave us his Holy Spirit. He has invested in us something infinitely more valuable than a hundred days wages. And church, one day we'll stand before him. And what will we say? Jeff, the money I gave you, I wrote a whole lot of stuff about feeding the hungry and about taking care of those that need. What did you do with the money that I gave you? Well, God, you'll be proud of me. I devised a series of questions that I could ask people so I could discern whether their needs are legit or not. Not one penny of mine was ever taken away by someone who didn't deserve it. Is that the answer I want to give Jesus? As I see his scars on his hands, as I see him as the lamb having just been slain who gave his life for me while I was yet a sinner and absolutely did not deserve it. What does deserve have to do with it at all? Jeff, what about the people that you knew that were unbelievers and did you ever talk to them? You know, I tried here and there. Uh, you know, I would drop hints. I'd make comments about church. I tweeted some stuff that was probably effective. Some of them got retweeted. But I was also afraid of rejection and I was afraid that people would think I was a little weird and the culture's getting harder about that stuff and so it was kind of scary and and I just decided I probably just don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't really need to worry about it. Rejection's part of the deal. Rejection comes along with it. Oh, that we might have, I was so convicted over this. Like, do we burn for the lost? Or has it just become this innocuous part of our life that we don't really think about so much anymore? Do we look at Palm Sunday like, yes, our king is coming and forget that our king came in humility for people that he knew were gonna hate on him just a few days later. Even his own disciples would scatter and he wept for them. Do we forget that part? It's part of the deal. This week we have opportunity that's rare. People will come to church on Easter. They will. If you invite people to church on Easter, they'll come. They don't even understand why. And it's dumb if you think about it because it's not even like a Christmas holiday that's been sort of uh, secularized or anything like that. It's an actual holiday to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and they'll come. So what are we gonna do with that? Who, who, who have we given up on? Right now, I want you to think. I want you to think in your mind right now of someone you know that doesn't know Jesus. And if you can't think of someone, your life is jacked up. You are way deep in the Christian bubble and you need out like today. But think of somebody, coworker, someone that it's good odds you either will see this week or can see this week. And now I want you to picture our savior sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking over this, the same hill the Bible tells us he'll return to looking over this city and there's all these people on a holiday weekend just buzzing about doing their normal thing having no idea that Jesus had come that he might die for their sins and set them free for eternity it's the same situation you're in this week this city will be a buzz with people from pear blossom all the way through Easter weekend 
And there's people that are gonna go buy Easter baskets for their kids and they don't even know why. It's just part of normal culture and they don't get it. And church, I'm telling you, the avenue to change is not power and authority that validates Easter holiday or any of those kind of things. The avenue to change is not making sure people put Easter cards out with Christmas signs on them or any of those kind of things. The avenue to change is that we would humbly follow the model of our Savior through self-sacrifice, enduring shame and rejection if necessary, and that we would take this investment of the gospel that God has given us and be wise stewards with it. That one day we may stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful steward, servant. You can rule over 10 cities, Jeff. That's gonna be a good day. You're not gonna wanna miss that day. So let's take an opportunity right now. We're gonna dim the lights a little bit and I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. And I want you to ask God to put someone on your heart if he hasn't already. One person. And I want you to ask God to give you the same heart for that person that Jesus had as he wept over that city. But they're my enemy. Awesome, even better. Because everybody loves their friends. What reward is in that? Christ gave his life for those who hated him. Ask God to break your heart on behalf of that lost person. And then ask him to show you what you can do. How you can take that investment of the gospel that's been given you and how you can steward that and share that with them to bring invest or to bring profit to the kingdom. And then ask that by his spirit, he gives you the guts to actually do it. Take a minute to pray. first and foremost we just thank you that you would have shed a tear over us <coughs> we are so unworthy of the grace that you've given us God thank you that you sought us out when we were lost that you saved us brought us into the fold that you call us your friend what an amazing gift. And Lord, this week, I pray, Lord, for those here that are followers of you, Jesus, may this be a significant week for us as we think these things through. The incredible cost that our salvation brought to you, Lord. I, I just pray that this week, maybe, maybe we've been through these things our whole life, but may this week be powerful and significant to us, God. And Lord, each of us has this person in our mind. Father, give us the heart for the lost, this person and others, Lord. 
give us the same heart you had. Help us to understand and remember the reality of the situation we're in, that this isn't a game, the danger that they are in apart from you. Empower us by your spirit, I pray, God, with boldness that we might speak your name as the apostles did in the book of Acts. Take away fear of rejection or make us numb to it. Help us, God, to be able to be faithful stewards of what you've given us. And I even pray, Lord, this week for these services at this specific church, because it's where we are. God, will you save people through it? I pray for those that would come to church just because it's a holiday. Those that would call you king, but Lord, will turn away from you at the drop of a hat, just as those did in this story we just read. I pray, God, that there would be genuine conversion, that your spirit would change lives that no one would be fooled into thinking they're Christian, but instead, God, that you would make them such. And I pray, Lord, for those that are skeptics and unbelievers who are just coming because the family did or because you're supposed to, God, may you open their eyes to a reality greater than they've ever understood. And then for those of us, Lord, who have been saved, who are recipients of your grace, I ask God that your spirit would empower a joy and celebration in worship that makes that basketball game I went to last week look ridiculous. May we just be reminded again of what you went through on our behalf and may our souls just erupt with praise for you are the mighty king who set all of that aside on behalf of sinners like us, who suffered on our behalf, carried sin on our behalf, died on our behalf, rose again to our great benefit and has brought us into the kingdom of God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, establish your kingdom, but may we be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom even today. In Jesus' name, will you stand and sing with us as we close?